Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this program is being pre-recorded for Friday, September 20th, 2019. Right now it is Thursday afternoon, and we are going to have Dr. Michael Hill with us, the president of the League of the South, and we're going to have a discussion entailing what is a church? If you are a nationalist, what should you think about church? If you recognize that the world is corrupt and all of the Christian churches of any denomination are guilty of magnifying, perpetuating, or enabling that corruption, how could you take part in any such church? As either a Christian or a nationalist, how could you contribute to the corruption? If you attend these churches, how could you not be guilty of the sins which the churches have come to accept and even promote? So this afternoon we have Dr. Michael Hill with us to help us with this discussion. Hello, sir. Thank you for being here. It's always my pleasure, Bill. Uh, this is a very important question that you brought up today as well, and I'm honored and privileged to, to be here to help you uh, go through this, because I think, as I said, it's something our people need to understand. Well, well, I I do appreciate that. You know a lot more about specifically Southern history and culture than I do, and, and perhaps you can, I'm certain you can fill in a lot of your own experiences in, in some of the transitions that have taken place in, in the culture of the South the last 50, 60 years. And, and I'm going uh, to... Yes, I, I, I can. Uh, particularly for the last 50 or 60 years, being 67 years old, I remember quite a lot of this. And, and uh, it's, it's gone from uh, a bad situation uh, when I was young to a much worse situation than I ever thought I would see at this particular point in time. And, and it's only bound to keep getting worse. As things progress, yes. they tend to to snowball. And, and I have some examples of this lined out. I'm going to start by picking on, on the Roman Catholics, but probably end up by picking on, on the Southern Baptist Convention, right? We, we have a little of everything thrown in here because all of these um, denominations, that they're all on the same page with this progression into Sodom and Gomorrah that the, the whole world has been led into. I, I, I mean, that they're even complaining in the media that these little countries out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean don't accept gay marriage yet, as if they're still backwards and, and we have progressed. The, the Roman Catholic Well, Church, this whole, this whole, this whole uh, <clears throat> pushing of, of sodomy and all these perversions, you know, I can remember in the 1960s <clears throat> when all of this stuff started, uh, and it was obviously pushed by the Jews for, for, for all intents and purposes. It was their program. But, you know, it, it, it went from the, you know, we just want to be recognized as, you know, who we are, and we don't want people bothering us, and we want to do what we want to do in the privacy of our own homes. And, you know, a lot of people were taken in by that. But now, it's as you pointed out, it's got to the point where, you, you not only uh, are expected to, uh, uh, you know, tolerate the stuff, you, you, you're expected to applaud it and support it. 
And unfortunately, the church, which ought, the church is, which ought to be uh, leading the fight against this sort of perversion, have embraced it. Uh, and I think you've got several uh, examples that you told me earlier that you were going to go through. So I'll throw it back to you here and let you do that. But absolutely, I, re- I, I can I can remember over the last you know five six decades uh, this this uh, descent into into the abyss, uh, you know, taking place step by step by step and uh hey you know we 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 may have not seen anything yet well well, absolutely it's going to get worse it's the progression from the acceptance of sodomy and and now they're trying to push the acceptance of pedophilia and and pedophile as another sexual lifestyle choice that that's just as legitimate as, as traditional marriage between a man and a woman. It it's getting worse and worse, and, and there's no doubt. I, I I don't know how how much further down the cliff we could go before people actually realize that we're about to go over it. I, 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 well, really, I mean, I mean, how many more perver? I, I'm sure there are a lot more perversions. I mean, we didn't even throw in bestiality and necrophilia and. All kind of stuff like that, but the the human uh, the human heart is a very dark thing, and it can uh, descend uh, way way down into these sorts of sexual transgressions that you're talking about here, and and you know the church is just impotent. The church has made itself impotent against these things, and 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 I I don't expect much else from them. You know, I left my church going on four years ago, and I worship at home now, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. But uh, this is one of the reasons I, I've done that, Bill, is because they won't stand up for a simple thing. Uh, you know, God God says, for example, that, that this, uh, this uh, you know, sodomy is, is an affront to him, is an abomination, I think is the word that the King James Version of the Bible uses. Oh, what is the church? Why, why can't the church see this? Why can't they simply say, if it's an abomination to God, we have an obligation to stand four square against it. But you know they temporize and you know rub rub toes with this monster, and all of a sudden they become uh, its friend, its supporter, and that's simply why we're asking this question. I think today, sir, what is a church? Well, it's not something that behaves like this. Absolutely not. And let let me get into a a little of this. The Roman Catholic Church, now now this plays right against what you just said. They might have taken a public stance against sodomy. But for centuries, it has turned a blind eye to the sodomy and the pedophilia, which had been practiced by its own priests. So that now, in current times, even the Vatican has started to soften its position against homosexuals. And and the Orthodox Church is not free of this dilemma. When I was researching for this article I wrote, pokrov.org, I found this website, P-O-K-R-O-V.org, that is a resource for survivors of abuse in the Orthodox churches. And they list cases, documented cases, um, of priests and other Orthodox clerics who have been convicted criminally or sanctioned by the church 
for their sodomy and, and child abuse and other sexual indiscretions. So it's not just the Catholics, it's the Orthodox priests as well, even married Orthodox priests. One married Orthodox priest in San Francisco was actually running a prostitution ring. So, wow. so that this, all of the problems and corruption we see in the, among the Roman Catholic clergy exists also amongst this Orthodox clergy. And right, you haven't even mentioned you haven't even mentioned the Protestant denominations yet. So right, the the Protestant churches all have these same problems, and perhaps to an even greater degree, but because they have a yes, much higher adultery between between their pastors and and men's wives out in the laity, that there are that there is one the Southern Baptist Convention has suffered 700 documented cases of child sexual abuse in the last 20 years. That was reported yeah. in February by the Houston Chronicle. Wow, <laughs> amazing. 700 Yeah, and there was, a, uh, not, not to mention names or anything, but there was a very high-profile case, uh, or two, two cases here in the state of Alabama over the last couple of years regarding... Uh, Church, uh, church officials, mainly youth ministers and things like that, that were involved in these kinds of things in the Southern Baptist Church. So, yeah, exactly. It's it's all over the place. There was a um, post going around our social media social media circles this morning about a um, a sting operation, I think, in Illinois that actually nabbed a doctor, a medical doctor, and a children's youth counselor, <clears throat> a children's youth mm -hmm. counselor for a church. So, so <laughs> this problem is ubiquitous. I, I mean, I'm, yes, sure, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the sexuality and, and the constant sexual innuendo and constant depictions of sexual acts that come across television every day and movies every i'm sure it has nothing to do with that <laughs> i'm being sarcastic of course but, but i know yeah, you are sir i know you well youth, enough to know that the, the absolutely well I, you know i think the whole culture has been sexualized and not 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 in a, a healthy way uh you know we've had uh i mean the human mind can think up all kinds of perversions and and i'm sure that give it given time and space it will but uh you know for the life of me i i can't imagine uh i could never have imagined when i was a child you know a teenager even that you would have so so many excuse me clergymen ministers pastors whatever you want to call them that would give in to these things i, I mean obviously i know that a pastor is uh is you know uh is a sinner like the rest of us, and he's, you know, bound to be tempted from time to time by things. But, man, uh, you know, the church has not even made any attempt uh, to to resist these things seriously. As you point out, they might have an official policy on the books that says, no, you know, obviously we, we're not in support of sodomy, you know. But, you know, in reality, uh, they, they've done very little, and that's just one of these perversions. Uh, there are others, pedophilia, you know, just plain old adultery, various other things, or fornication, rather, not adultery. Uh, but uh, they, the church just seems to take these things as something that uh, 
is inevitable, and they've, as I like to say, they've they've sold out to use biblical terminology to the world, the flesh, and the devil, because it's very very easy to get along in the world if you, if you you know at least turn a blind eye toward homosexuality and pedophilia and all these kinds of things rather than come down firmly against it the Jew media will get all over you and you know make a make a case against you in the court of public opinion at the very least uh, if you stand up as a pastor for example uh, against these things they'll single your your church out and I've seen instances of that happen and and a lot of a lot of uh, pastors and all priests in the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches probably don't have to put up with what it would cost them to take a committed stand against these perversions. In in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes um, lesbians and homosexuals, and he concludes his description with the statement that people who accept such sinners are just as guilty of the sins which they commit as the sinners themselves. Speaking in reference to sodomy, I was um, reading for this, for this podcast, for this presentation this morning, and I found that in 2012, the Southern Baptist Convention took a firm stance against sodomy. But even with that firm stance that it took, it resolved to take a stand against any form of gay bashing, whether it be disrespectful attitudes, hateful rhetoric, or hate-incited actions towards persons who engage in acts of homosexuality. And that's a vague position which could actually be constructed as discouraging or even condemning any admonishment of sodomites. If you can't have, yeah, that. exactly. I mean, it, it, you know, if, if you will not criticize something like that, your your silence uh, is taken in many cases as consent, as as I think in this case it probably should be. Absolutely. If you can't have a disrespectful attitude towards a sodomite, that then you're being basically forced to accept the sodomite. And That's that, right. That's 2012. It. But by 2014, the Southern Baptist Convention was officially neglecting to condemn gay-tolerant churches. It started taking a libertarian position towards sodomy. Mm-hmm. Even towards church pastors who proclaim that sodomy is not a sin, when it certainly is a grave sin. Wow. I, I mean... God did destroy the sodomites. He, he didn't eradicate the idea of sodomy, but he destroyed the sodomites. Well, I always pray imprecatory prayers, my friend, and one of my imprecatory prayers is that he will destroy all of these so-called pastors who will not declare something as vile as sodomy to be a sin. Well, well, the problem with the pastors, if you're a member of one of these church organizations, you might deny that these things are happening in your particular church. Mm, There's probably a lot of good small churches in white rural areas, but with all certainty, that church is a member of an association of churches with members that are plagued 
with such problems. So, so that is true, sir. And they're, and they're basically saying, well, you know, don't hold us responsible. But, you know, if you lay down with, uh, if you lay down with pigs, as my, my granddaddy used to say, you're going to get up dirty. And they're lying with, uh, with swine here. Uh, and they, they may say, well, you know, don't blame us. Well, we do blame you because you're guilty by true association here. This is true guilt by association. Absolutely, because they're enabling that these fellow churches to appoint pastoral positions, to, to appoint sodomites and lesbians into these pastoral positions. And, and the church associations, in turn, are able to enforce their will in the local churches by threatening to disfellowship them. And, and yeah. no church pastor wants to be disfellowshipped. No, no. Uh, I've, I've seen, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've seen these things happen uh, over the past three or four years to some of our league members where they basically were told, you either get on board with what this particular church or this denomination, uh, in some cases, believes about, <clears throat> in this case, it was not necessarily about the issue of sodomy, but it was about white nationalism in general. And they basically were told there is no room in our particular church or even in our denomination for a white nationalist. Right. So they have had to make a choice. Here And some of them have made the right choice, in my opinion, by leaving that church or forcing the church to kick them out. But some have compromised. Some have compromised. Well, well I know that we lost some Orthodox members, probably to their church. Uh, yes, I, th I think that's happened. Absolutely. That, that's the dilemma of the nationalist. Yeah, you know, that same 2012 Southern Baptist Convention announced that all people, regardless of race or sexual orientation, are created in the image of God and thus are due respect and love. Now, now you're probably more familiar with this than I. In 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention had renounced racism, abandoning yep. a 150-year policy of encouraging segregation. And, and those same attitudes are expressed quite frequently in the literature of all church organizations, where it has become practically impossible for any nationalist to justify his positions on the preservation of his own race and nation through ethnic separation. And it also bars the door to any position against race mixing. Yep. The, the, I can uh, remember uh, I can remember all these southern churches, and I'm talking about uh, churches uh, even like the uh, Methodist Church, the Southern Baptist Church, and various other uh, denominations when I was a child. They all were against race mixing. You could talk to the pastors, you could talk to the to the people in the congregations. Uh, I'd say ninety percent of them at, at least were against race mixing and had absolutely no problem telling you that they were. That, that was the, the, the milieu uh, in which we grew up uh, here in the South. It was just taken as a fact of life, and the church was there to uphold it. 
And, uh, of course, today, as you just pointed out, it's just the opposite. You know, they promote race mixing. They promote this idea that uh, of universalism that all people, regardless of their race or their, you know, whatever, sexual orientation or whatever, are created in God's image. And, obviously, I, for one, do not believe that is true. Uh, and you, we... Uh, we we had a time in, in the South here, and I'm sure it was like that in other parts of the country as well, where people knew better than this. Uh, well, well, right. There was a time in the, in the 1960s in the North that people knew better, that people just didn't do yeah. it. Now, they were already by then cucked out of taking a, a public stance against it, but I could probably count the number of race-mixed couples that I saw in my life before 1974, before I graduated from the eighth grade, on one hand, and right. probably not use all my fingers. Same here. Certainly, certainly being from down in the deep south when I was a boy, and I mean not just a little boy, when I was a teenager, <clears throat> you just did not see this kind of thing. And certainly, you wouldn't find any any preacher uh, in in the in the South, particularly the rural South, and probably the suburban and urban South too, that would have dared get up in the pulpit and advocate for race mixing. Well, well I know people that like to talk about how great the um, Roman Catholic Church was before Vatican II, before the early '60s, but in 1948. Roman Catholic churches were instrumental in getting California's anti-miscegenation laws because California had those laws on a book. They got mm -hmm. them struck down. The Catholic Church was instrumental in that, in getting those laws struck down. That was 1948, long before Vatican II. In mm -hmm. 1967, in, I mean, I'm sure this is a famous Supreme Court case that you're familiar with, Loving versus Virginia, Roman yes, Catholic churches... Roman Catholic churches, agencies, and bishops from throughout the South filed front of the court briefs encouraging the court to strike down the laws prohibiting interracial marriage, and, and that affected nearly a dozen states across the South. Yes, it did, particularly down in the Deep South. Right. I can remember that. Uh, I can remember that absolutely happening, that Loving versus Virginia case. The um, I, I found, and, and a, a lot of people say that the Orthodox Church is nationalist and, and the Orthodox Church is against race mixing or whatever, that this propaganda that they spew in America um, is a pipe dream. It, if you go to the official website of the Orthodox Church, it's at mospat.ru, and I'll have the links with our presentation when I post it. The official position of the Russian Orthodox Church is a denunciation of nationalism, xenophobia, and national exclusiveness. And Orthodox clergy in America have issued statements declaring racism to be a sin. So, so these Orthodox churches are not the friends of nationalists that even many nationalists think. Not at all. They are not on board with nationalist positions. 
Uh, no, sir. I, <clears throat> I, had one, I once thought that the Eastern Orthodox Church or, or the Russian Orthodox, I know there are several branches of it, uh, might live up to this claim that they were pro-nationalist, but I've done my due diligence over the past few years, and I've come up with exactly what you've come up with, sir, from what I've seen officially from their statements. They are no friend of nationalism. Uh, they condemn xenophobia. Uh, they they uh, they sound very little at all, if at all, different from the Roman Catholic Church or the mainline, and even some of the so-called conservative denominations of Protestantism today, when they, where these things are concerned. Well, they use um, biblical passages to support their positions, but these passages are usually taken out of context. They're taken out of their original, not only their, their literary context, but their historical context. And they're only very, like very little true. lines that are abused in, in order to promote race mixing, basically. And, and the church. Uh, yes, sir. I agree with you. They, if they're going to find anything, uh, and I use the word find here with quotation marks about, about it, if they're going to find anything in the Bible that supports race mixing, uh, they're going to have to abuse it, as you so correctly say, instead of use it, because it's not there. Absolutely. It's absolutely not there. And, and while the churches won't teach this, the truth is that those verses are taken out of context. In the New Testament, the Apostle Jude informs us that fornication is, he defines fornication for us as the going after of strange flesh. And in modern English, that would be the pursuit of different flesh, which is race mixing. That's right. Now, is that? Now, let me ask you a question of clarification here. Is that the definition of fornication, or is that the definition of adultery? Well, that depends upon the, the context, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, how certain Greek words okay. were translated, how certain, I got you. how certain Hebrew words were translated. In Hebrew, right. in the Old Testament, adultery can be um, sleeping with another man's wife, or right. it can be mixing your race. And that is because right. either of those actions causes confusion of the bloodline. Right. That's why. Okay. So and, that's the key is the confusion of the bloodline. Right. I have passages okay. in Greek writers in Strabo of, of Cappadocia and in Aristotle's writings on, on the natural world that will show that both words, the Greek word for fornication and the Greek word for adultery, were at different times used to describe race mixing. Okay, that's what I wanted to clear up. I've made myself a note to ask you that today because, <clears throat> you know, I've, I'd always thought that the term adultery was a, a, uh, a, a form of adulteration, which obviously means to mix something down uh, in a negative sense. <clears throat> yes. So uh, I'm glad you cleared that up for me.
Well, well, many Christians have realized that in the Ten Commandments, I mean, God only gave us Ten Commandments, right? I mean, that should right. that upon those commandments hang all the law and the prophets, according to Christ. That's right. So, so right. in those Ten Commandments, there were two commandments, which the way the modern churches teach basically mean the same thing. Which is, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Well, if you're coveting yes, your neighbor's exactly. wife, according to Christ, you've already committed adultery. But why are there two commandments describing the same thing? Because in Hebrew, one of them described the form of adultery where you would have your neighbor's wife, but the other one described race mixing. Right. Okay. So, Makes so. perfect sense. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul of Tarsus used that same word, fornication, in regard to an incident in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 25, where the men of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. That was a grave sin. It caused 24,000 people to be struck dead by a plague. And Paul warned the Corinthians not to commit fornication as they had done. Describing race mixing. So there, there are ways to explain pretty simply in scripture that race mixing is a sin. But these pastors, these modern pastors and priests are either ignorant of them or willfully ignorant of them. I don't know which. They can't all be that stupid not to realize these things. Well, I, I do believe that this is an example, because I agree with you. I, I don't think most of them are stupid. Uh, I, I think they're <clears throat> think they're cowardly. Uh, they realize that to, to stand up and, and preach against race mixing, they're going to bring down the uh, secular world on their head, and they're afraid to deal with it. I think, as I said before, you know, they, they've sold out to the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, for an easy path. And I think this is simply a reflection of that. Well, well that's absolutely true. <laughs> and that, that leaves the nationalist in a dilemma, even if he attends one of these churches, even if it's an all-white right. church, even if it's free of the taint of sodomy or pedophilia. What would they do? What would that nationalist do the first time a Negro or somebody else of another race walked through the door and took a seat? And then, if he is allowed to stay, what would he do the first time that Negro or that Asian or that Mexican asks your daughter for a date? How mm -hmm. could you take part in that? How could you even be a nationalist and, and imagine unification with other races in the kingdom of heaven? Because if you do, <coughs> then what's the moral basis for your nationalism here in this world? You have none. None whatsoever. It's, yeah, there's much more in Scripture that I can demonstrate proves that race mixing is evil. But it's absolutely evident to me that Scripture does provide a moral foundation for nationalism. And it's the only proper moral foundation for nationalism. You won't find a moral foundation for nationalism in the literature of the alt-right and, and all the other light groups. It, it's not there and non-Christian groups. They can't defend it. Richard Spencer loses debate after debate. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, the Bible is is the epitome 
of of a white nationalist book because uh you know it goes all the way <clears throat> back to uh to adam uh, up uh, up through christ and it gives so much genealogical information that you have got if you if you looked at nothing else you would say well why is god so insistent upon continually repeating this line of of uh, of genetic development this bloodline between adam and christ and there is a good reason for that uh, obviously is i've always said that the bible is the most nationalistic book that you could ever read and uh it's the foundation for for nationalism i i believe uh and i think anyone who denies that is simply uh uh, either uh, fooling themselves or, or has allowed themselves to be fooled by someone. And I, I think I know who that someone might be. Uh, that may be a topic for another program. But, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. yeah, you're right. Nationalism is, uh, is, is something that is God-ordained uh, for his people because if it were not, his people would disappear into what I like to call a sea of, of mud or we would all be this coffee-colored sameness, uh, and, there would, and God would have himself no, no line, no people, no blood. Well, well that's absolutely true. The, the Bible, I, can, I have papers at Christagenia that, that offer more than sufficient proof that if you go back to that Genesis chapter 10 table of nations and compare it to ancient his, history and ancient um, inscriptions that have been dug up out of the ground, you'll find that every one of those nations was originally white. You will also yes. find in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 4, and Genesis chapter 15, that there are other races of people here that are mentioned in the scripture, which did not come from that Genesis 10 group of white families and which were always adversarial to them and where it was right. always a sin to mix with them right from the beginning. But your average pastor or priest cannot tell you these things. Even if he knew them, he couldn't tell you these things. The, the churches <laughs> have declared that Eve's the mother of all living, so therefore Eve's the mother of all races which is not what the scripture says. And, and we see Cain in Genesis chapter 4 gets ejected from, from the presence of his family after he kills Abel, and he goes off and builds a city and finds a wife. That There's all sorts of harder evidence than that in the scripture that there are other races outside of yes. this group of nations that are all historically white. All of right. them. That they've been a lot of them are not white anymore because they have have succumbed to ancient forms of the same propaganda that we are being bombarded with today. Yeah, this propaganda is not new. It's it's the devil's own trick book that we're dealing with here. Absolutely. Even if you want to believe, even if you're insistent on believing that where it says God made of one blood all nations of men, 
even if you insist that that describes other races as well as our race, the churches fall short of repeating the rest of that statement where it says that God determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Right. And that's in Acts chapter 17. You go a little further on to the Revelation to chapter 20, you'll see that where the bounds of those habitations are broken, it's Satan who is gathering all nations against the camp of the saints. It's Satan that is breaking the bounds of their habitation. That's right. So, so we see where we see the mixing of all nations into mystery Babylon. That's not the work of God. Even if he knew it would happen, God is warning us against that. It's the work of the devil, and these churches are all deceived into supporting it. That's right. Absolutely deceived into supporting it. And, you know, therein is another uh, obvious reason for a true nationalist never to set foot in one of these things. And absolutely, because they're all doing the work of the devil. And, and if that's you it. actually read you got that, Bible, that That's right down to the fundamentals, Bill. They are doing the work of Satan himself. How could you, how could you even darken the door? of a place like this, much less open up your wallet and give your so-called tithe to someone who is doing clearly the work of Satan and not the work of, of Yahweh himself. So, so if you're a it, nationalist... It just boggles my mind. Right. It befuddles me as well. If you're a nationalist and you're going to a Catholic church or an Orthodox church or, or a Southern Baptist convention or any organized denomination, because they all have the same policy... They all do. If you're a nationalist and you're going to one of these and giving your money to one of these, you're self-defeating. You're, you're defeating yourself. If you're a nationalist, any sort of, of, of nationalist, it doesn't have to be a southern nationalist, and you're going to one of these churches, any one of these organized churches, it doesn't matter if it's Catholic, Orthodox, one of these Protestant denominations, they all have the same policies on race, and they've all had the same progression towards the acceptance of sodomy, and, and, and they're all sending money to overseas missions in support of other races, money which has been wasted now for 500 years because these African and Haitian and, and other Caribbean countries never rise to the level of a first world nation. It's impossible. And they never um, rise to the level of a Christian society, no matter how much you jam Christianity down their throats. But you're going to these churches, you're giving your tithes and your money to these anti-nationalist churches, and you are self-defeating. You are defeating your other efforts over here, where you're only playing at nationalist. You're a play nationalist. You're not a real nationalist. You're LARPing. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, you know, if, if, the, if the God that you worship is not the God that has revealed himself to us in his holy scripture, then uh, who are you worshiping here? Uh, and that, that is a, a question that every nationalist is going to have to, to, to ask himself because he's got to, he's got to square his own beliefs 
and his conscience with uh, what he's being told in these so-called churches. And I don't see how any nationalist who believes uh, that, that the Bible speaks authoritatively, which it does, on the subject of God's people and who they are and what their obligations to him and to each other are. But any man who, who takes that seriously and can sit in a modern church and hear all this race-fixing crap uh, spewed out Sunday after Sunday to, to give ties to programs in foreign countries that build up populations that explicitly have already said that, that you know, they're coming to occupy our, our lands because, uh, you know, they, they, they like what the white man has created. Uh, this is suicide, and this is a fundamental building block of that suicidal behavior, in my opinion, is a white nationalist who will go to one of these churches and sit there and listen to a pastor, a priest, or whatever, lay out the details of his own self-destruction and not realize the lack of, of sense that it makes for him to be doing this. It is basically insane for a man to accept a theological position that will end up uh, with his own demise and extinction, uh, not only as an individual, but his bloodline as a whole. Uh, it, it's amazing to me that whites could have the wool pulled over their eyes, as we say sometimes, uh, in, in such a fundamental matter, Bill, as, as this. Uh, I just don't understand it. Well, well, whites are the sheep of his pasture, so there's plenty of wool. <laughs> The, the, the whole Bible That's exactly rests, right. The whole Bible rests on the continually repeated statement in Genesis that the creation of God was made kind after kind. And nationalism, to me, is the political and social expression of the desire to maintain one's own kind relative to that commandment. That's not hate. That's an expression of love for God's creation when you love your own people. Absolutely. That's right, and I've always tried to tell all, all these Jew organizations that, that continually call us in the league haters, uh, you know, we fundamentally are a love group, as I like to say. We love our own people. We love the God who created us to be what we are. We love the blessings that he has given us as white people, the blessings that he gave to this marvelous thing called Christendom uh, that, that we have you know, so flippantly thrown away by our disobedience. Uh, so this is about love in, in the long run, fundamentally. But obviously, uh, you have these people who are the real haters, and they, you know, uh, make no mistake about it, they hate the white race, particularly the Jew. Uh, and they have uh, taken this, this idea of hatred that they have for us and thrown it on us and called us the haters. We simply love our own people, and we love our God, and we love our civilization that he's so, so uh, uh, wondrously given to us. But, uh, hey, here we are. We're always called the haters. So we, we continually have to, to stand up and uh, explain our position here. Any, any, any nationalist who, who listens to, um, I, I don't want to beat my chest, but any nationalist who listens to any of my work should be able to discern the difference between what we say and and what 
the people that the pastors in these denominational churches say. These pastors are not properly educating them, and they will never be able to defend their nationalism on moral grounds without that education, a proper Christian education. Little things, like the word neighbor, the Hebrew word that's translated as neighbor, you should love your neighbor as you love yourself, that first appears in Scripture, not in the New Testament. It's in Leviticus chapter 19. That's where it first appears. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. That word neighbor is a, it, it's a term, it's an agricultural term. It refers to sheep. That word neighbor refers to someone who was raised up on the same pasture from the same flock that you are from. That's what that word neighbor means. And if a wolf comes and moves in among the sheep, that does not make the wolf a neighbor to that sheep. No. It, it's uh, your neighbor. It makes is, him a, in reality, it makes him nothing more than a predator. Right. A, a neighborhood should be a group of, a wider group of kin and extended family. People in, in European villages were all related at one time, that they were third and fourth and fifth cousins or in-laws or whatever. They were all related at one time. They were neighbors to each other. They were from the same flock and raised up in the same pasture. That's the meaning of that Hebrew word neighbor. That's the connotation that it has. That is a very interesting thing. Very can, interesting. Very interesting definition. Right in the pages of Strong's Concordance. The scripture right. commands Christians to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean and I will receive you. White Christians have a responsibility to separate themselves from sinners and also from the non-white races lest they be liable for any resulting fornication. If you don't separate yourself from the world, come out from her, my people. This is Revelation chapter 18, the fall of Babylon. Come out from her, my people, right. lest ye be guilty of her sins and you suffer her punishments. If you don't come out from, from, from this, this slide into sodomy and, and race mixing and, and these churches that support this and, and have gone along with this agenda, you're just as guilty of it. Well, that's true. And, and you know, not only should we consider coming out from among these, these false churches, but that's one reason that the League has always been a secessionist organization. There are a lot of other institutions that have been corrupted that we need to come out from among as well. And the big one is this uh, is this Im Im godless empire that has sway over us today. So this this probably uh, applies all up and down the line for for God's people to come out from among all of those who would corrupt them in in whatever institutions uh, they might might find themselves, whether it be the church or whether it be social or political institutions, etc. So I think this applies across the board. To our people, uh, you know, not just in the church, but but in other institutions as well. Well, well, to me, the, the the successionist platform of the league is actually important, even if it never succeeds. It's very important because the empire is not going to stand forever. Uh, 
And if the league is successionist minded and all of its members are successionist minded, then they are home rule minded and they should be putting the pieces of an organization into place by which they can survive and govern themselves when Babylon does fall. Exactly. That's the way I see it. Exactly. So, so, I do too, sir, and I think that fall is coming. And that's why we've been preparing now for a quarter century uh, when it does happen. Uh, and and the, best, the first thing I think you have to do is to prepare yourself psychologically uh, that this is likely to happen so you won't be just slapped in the face with a new situation when it, when it appears that you will have already considered it and you've already prepared for it in your mind. And uh, then when it happens, you are ready to go and prepare for it physically or well, to get well, it done physically. That's succession. Whatever needs to be done to, to, to put things back together. Succession now would be a wonderful thing, but that successionist attitude helps to prepare people for that. It, it should be all about absolutely, and it's not going to happen. It won't happen overnight unless something just un- completely unexpected happens. But uh, you know, you're right. If you're not psychologically prepared for something, you can't take advantage of the opportunity to make it into reality when the opportunity appears. So. Right, and, and succession is nothing more than than independence from from a, ty- a tyranny and, and home rule and self determination. That's it. And, and since our institutions, uh, unfortunately, including the churches, have been taken over by what I like to call an alien people pursuing an alien ideology, uh, then we, we have to look at all of these corrupt in, institutions as something that we have to replace with institutions of our own making. Absolutely. Again. And, and we should be prepared for that as a community. I mean, we can't do it all as individuals. That's right. But as a community, we could make great strides if we'd only work together. We can't work together with, with um, a, a, a large percentage of our members still um, being subservient to these worldly churches that, that are, are nothing but poison no. to our cause. 2,000 years ago... I couldn't men, agree with you more, sir. <clears throat> 2,000 years ago... Go ahead. Ago, men, I'm sorry. Men and women... That's fine. To, men and women who turned to Christianity 2,000 years ago had separated themselves from the wider, um, decadent Roman society. They separated themselves so that they could get away from that decadence. Paul of Tarsus wrote about some of that decadence in Romans chapter 1. And how the Romans were degrading themselves with sodomy. Well, well there are historians, Tacitus and Livy, who, who corroborate Paul in Romans chapter 1. And complain about the slide of Rome into immorality and decadence in the decades leading up to the time of Christ. But when they separated themselves, that there were no church buildings in those days. There were no, there were no Christian priests. Throughout 300 years of early Christian writings, I don't care who, who you, you want to read, Justin Martyr, um, the Shepherd Hermas, Clement of Rome, Origen, Tertullian, Irenaeus, none of those early Christian writers mention a Christian priest. Every time they mention priests, it's in connection with the pagan churches. 
For 300 years, there were no church buildings. There were no Christian priests. Christians were considered antisocial by, by the Roman historians because they stayed out of the temples. They didn't participate in the debauchery in, in the markets and, and in the brothels. But it was unlawful for large numbers of people to gather privately in ancient Rome. There were actually laws against that. And Romans sought to control religion, just like the empire today is seeking to control our religion. The U.S. government seeks to control our religion. They do it through the IRS tax code. They do it in various other ways. So it's the same situation that we're in that ancient Christians were in under the Roman Empire. But we at least still have, not in Charlottesville perhaps, a right of private assembly that the Romans didn't have at all. That Greek word ecclesia, which is translated as church in our modern Bibles, actually means assembly. In William Tyndall's New Testament, it was translated as congregation. That's what it means. A, a group of Christians assembled is a church. It doesn't matter where they're assembled. They are the congregation. They are the church. And Christians today, Christian nationalists, must understand this, that they have to get out of these churches of the empire and form their own congregations, form their own churches. That's the only way that Christianity, that they're going to maintain their Christianity in the face of everything that we're confronted with today. This, uh, I am very happy to say <clears throat> that in some states, uh, groups of league members have already started doing this. Now, it's not as widespread as I would like for it to eventually be, but I am encouraged that some of our good people have started doing this already, and those who are not, many of those who are not meeting together in groups are at least uh, having church in their own homes. Uh, I've been doing that for going on four years now, <clears throat> and... Uh, it's been a real blessing for me, and there's there's no way that I could I could go back to any uh, church uh, that I've been to in the past because they've they've all sold out. Uh, so if if you if you take this this idea of an assembly seriously, which <clears throat> I've looked into this too, and and you're absolutely right about it. Uh, it's the people. It, it doesn't have anything to do with a hierarchy of priests or a building, or any of the trappings that go along with a, a modern man-made religious uh, <clears throat> hierarchy. Uh, it is the people. It is the assembled people of God. No matter who they are, uh, you know, uh, no matter whether they have a priest or a pastor or, or whatever, uh, and no matter if they have a building. Uh, it's just like you said, for the first 300 years, they had neither. Uh, and that's a good tradition for us to lean, or rather to fall back on. And in lieu of what we face in these, uh, you know, devil's dens called churches today, I don't see any alternative to that, my friend. 
Well, well, there is none if we're going to survive as a people and maintain our Christian morals and Christian society. We have to come out of these churches. That there should be no yes. nationalist going to a, a, a denominational mainstream church. I, I don't care about the excuses that these Orthodox people think that they have the original Christianity. These Roman Catholics think that they have the original Christianity. It's simply not true. This idea of this Christian priesthood did not exist until Constantine the Great issued an Edict of Toleration and in between that time and the time that Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, this Christian priesthood emerged, which was really former pagan priests who began to influence a newly emerging form of Christianity, which was made to be acceptable to the empire. It's not Christian. Right. There was no Christian priesthood for 300 years. These were... that This apparatus was put in place so that the empire could control Christianity because they couldn't control it for three yeah, years. Yeah, that's right. And, and if anybody who's... Yeah, I like, I like what you... Yeah, I like what you said before, too, that if you really want to go back and, and see what the true Christianity was, you need to go back and look at apostolic Christianity. What did the apostles do? Uh, what would they have thought about uh, all these rituals and this organization that actually stem from paganism? You know, uh, and I think that's something that that we don't uh, that we don't pay attention to is uh, what is the apostolic view of all this? Right, because you'll only find little lines as, as usual. They take everything out of context and twist it in, into supporting themselves. You'll find little lines uh, about baptism and and marriage, but in, in the Christian view, baptism was for John the Baptist, and Christ said that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire the trials of this life, where marriage happens in a bed. You know, ancient marriage in an altar happened in the Baal temples, in the pagan temples. They had sex at the altars. Ancient Christians wrote about it. Tertullian, the, the bishop of Carthage, I believe, in, in um, the 3rd the century AD, wrote about how in the pagan temples they had sex at the altars. He was only quoting from Greek historians and also how the genitals of priests were admired at the altars by, by the temple attendants. It, it mm -hmm. marriage in an altar is a pagan idea. A Christian idea is marriage as a contractual agreement between a young man and his bride's father, and a, a right. celebration at home of that agreement. <laughs> and Isaac loved Rebecca when he saw her, and brought him into his mother's tent. And made her his wife. I don't think there was a priest, a, a license issuing authority, a minister, a justice, and a priest in that tent. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think so. No, <laughs> I don't think so. It, it's th this, absolutely. 
it, it's nice to have celebrations and commemorate things. Uh, I will never take that away from anybody, but it's not what makes a marriage. It's not what makes a child a Christian. It, it's it's all engineered by this priesthood to control our lives. In ancient times, going back to ancient Sumer, ancient Babylon, read the inscriptions. The kings and the priests worked together in order to control the people. Because you could control me by force and compel me to do things, but you really won't have control of me unless you control my conscience. That's what this That's modern exactly religion right. is all about. That's what the Catholic Church is all about. That's what the Orthodox Church is all about. So that the kings can control the consciences of men and get them to comply willingly instead of having to force them. That's it, sir. That's it. You hit the nail on the head. If you can convince somebody to police themselves according to your dictates and standards, then you don't have to pay a guard to watch over them 24 hours a day. And that's Mystery Babylon. It's not Christianity. That's it. No, it's not. So in, in reality, and, and I could prove this through the documents all day long, organized Christianity of the 4th century was never true Christianity. It was never the Christianity of the apostles. The apostles would have despised this. They, if the apostles could walk the earth today, they would think that, that, that Christianity was forgotten and the whole world was filled with pagan temples. <laughs> I tell you what, they'd, they'd, they'd be very close to being right about that if they had visited any of these so-called churches. Uh, and, and, you know, I've, I've been experiencing these things personally now. You know, not 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 counting when I was a child, but as as an adult, now for a quarter of a century, and I have come away from every single one, Bill, worse than disillusioned, time after time, and that told me something right there, that God was not abandoning me. God was leading my path away from the false gods and idols, down a path to where I could see something that actually made sense of his word applied in this world. And that is what I am, uh, with thanks to, to, for, to, to men like you for the uh, help that you've given me, uh, I've begun to see these things. And uh, it's been quite a true revelation uh, to finally look at God's word and be able to apply it to history and to see the unfolding of his great providential plan, I think the way that he intended for us to see it through reading and understanding his word. And, and, and that's what we call Christian identity. And, and even if people can't quite get there, because it does take a lot of study and understanding to get to Christian identity, as you yourself mentioned, having a long path, I spent 20 years in apostasy before I ever opened the Bible. But, but white Christians are completely under siege in their own lands. The organized churches are all entirely corrupted. Nationalists have to abandon those churches. League of the South members should abandon those churches. You could retain the, the necessary elements of your orthodox faith if that's the way you have to walk. That's your conscience. I'm not going to try to control it. 
or I'm not going to mock you for it. But you don't have to do it in an Orthodox church. You, you don't have to be a practicing Catholic in a Catholic church. You're, you're being a slave to that church that is working against your interests. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Rethink that and get out of those churches. Now, is Christian identity the ideal? I believe it's the truth. But I can't force men to understand it. But I can adjure them to get out of these churches that are killing our people. And that's what they're doing. Yes. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I found that to be the case because you know, any, anything that makes you come home and question what your senses, your, your eyes, your ears, your, uh, your entire sensory perception tells you is true, but you come home from church uh, trying to square what you've just heard there with what you know to be real and true in this world, then you begin to see that something has to give. And that, that was the situation with, with me all along during this 25-year odyssey that I've had uh, with uh, getting back into the church. And it's just like you said, I, I came back into uh, the Reformed Church, and I learned a lot of things that I did not know having been raised in the Methodist Church, obviously. I learned a lot. I read a lot of John Calvin and Martin Luther, and uh, I learned a lot of stuff about that. And, and some of that stuff, like the idea of a covenant, for example, uh, I still I still hang on to that, and I think it's legitimate. But I, I've, I've begun to see these things in the light of CI, Christian identity, and they make a lot more sense to me now than they do the way that the, the, that the Presbyterian Church currently uh, tries to teach them. Because, uh, in fact, I had a, uh, when I was a member of a local Presbyterian Church here, I had a CI friend who came, and he was, he was interested, and he kept asking them about the covenant, and they, they would not answer his question. And that's when I began to, to say to myself, do they really believe this idea of the covenant? Or is this just something that they know that is central to Presbyterianism, to the Reformed faith, as it's called, and they just have to mouth this, but they really don't believe the idea of a covenant as applied to, to God's own distinct people. And I, I, I simply had to come away saying that they... Preach one, they, 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 you know, preach one thing and live another, yes. and I just couldn't have anything to do with the church like that anymore. Well, well it's, it, it's to your credit that you were able to discern that and, and make a, 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 a subjective decision based on the facts rather than letting your emotions get in a way that, you know, people are actually taught that these churches have, that they're afterlife their life and death in their hands that their future in their hands and they don't we are all in the hands of god only he has that's right that that ability to to judge us and not any worldly church paul told the church no that's right they, these have become these are organizations of men right uh they've deviated from god's word clearly so they have absolutely no control over your eternal salvation or damnation that is in the hands of the the uh triune god father son and holy spirit 
working all together. That is the uh, that's the entity that I'm concerned about worshiping and pleasing. Paul of Tarsus, the, the assemblies in Corinth made some decisions that Paul didn't like, but that he respected. And I don't want to get into all the details now, but Paul had told them in in his second epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 1, after one of these decisions that they made, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. In other words, he, he could not force them. He wasn't the Pope. He could not force them to comply with his will. They chose to extend mercy to a sinner that Paul didn't think was what was um, worthy of that mercy, but Paul went along with their decision for their sake and kept at peace with them and did not um, torment them over, over that disagreement at all, and their, their decision stood. Paul was not ruling over them as a pope. These churches, their right. livelihood depends on your perception of their authority. So they need to maintain that control. Well, I think that's clear. I think that's clear uh, in First Corinthians there that this, the church is not in, uh, the, intended to have domination over a man's faith. You know, God is the Lord of the conscience. Right. Uh, no, no man. I don't care if he, you know, calls himself a pope or he calls himself whatever, or no group of men, whether they call them, themselves a session or elders or whatever has the right to dictate your conscience to you. That is a matter uh, of, for, for Yahweh himself, for the Lord uh, uh, himself to, to, to do. And uh, it's, it's a very personal thing between you and him. And there, there needs to be no intermediary there. And I think uh, that's what the, the church and the priesthood and all has set themselves up to be as a dominating, a domineering intermediary between God and man, and we don't need that. And that's that's one of the good things that I did, at least did learn from uh, the Reformed faith, is I did not need this dominion between me and God. So You, you just hit, a, you, you just hit a, a chord with me, that that idea of an intermediary is also a pagan idea. The word pontiff that yes, the Roman Catholics love to use. That is from a Latin word which means bridge builder. The idea being exactly. that you couldn't communicate with the God, that you needed that, that, that priest, that bridge builder, and he would be your intermediary. That is why Catholicism, to me, is paganism. In the, in the scriptures, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, period. That's it. In, that's it. That, that's in Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. <clears throat> in John's first epistle, he, he says that, my little children, I encourage you not to sin. And if we do sin, you have a, a propitiation for that sin in, in Christ. You have an advocate is the word he uses in Jesus Christ. He's our only advocate. That's right. As as yeah, he, that would be like an attorney arguing for you before the judge. Absolutely. He's the only one. There are no others. That's it. 
nope. I can only there, teach there the are no scriptures. others. I can only teach the scriptures to men in a historical setting and in their historical context. That's all I do. There's nothing that's more it. That that's I all you, you're called upon to do, sir. I don't have any power over anyone to, to wave a magic wand and change them into something that they're not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Christianity no. is not a, 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 a magic religion, a religion of magic. <laughs> it's a religion of no. historical reality. It, it is truth. Once you that's understand, it, sir. Yeah, you were talking about your, your walk. When I, um, I, I've been studying Christian identity 23 years. I've been an ordained pastor in Christian identity for 19. But just to show how long I've been around, um, in this 23 years of studying, it's all I've done. I haven't done anything else the last 23 years. I don't do anything else except Christogenia, what I produce there. That's my vocation entirely. So I devote my entire day, practically every day, to that, and I have for 23 years. Well, well in all of my study, to, to me, after all this time, there is, no, that there is no conflict between my religious beliefs and my nationalist persuasion and my feelings on race and society, there is no disparity. And there's no disparity with any of that and my understanding of history. And I've studied history quite deeply, especially fr from uh, 3000 BC and the earliest inscriptions through the fall of Rome. That's my specialty. That's my area where I'm the most studied. And I have no disparities. Right. I have no conflict in my thinking. And my, my belief... Sir, that, that is a very enviable position to be in. Nationalists are being disfellowshipped. A rare leaders. position. It's time that nationalists started disfellowshipping churches rather than being dis disfellowshipped from them what we that's right what we have to turn to each other we have to turn to ourselves we have to establish our own communities no matter how small because what we don't know yet you know paul said that i i planted in apollos waters but it's god that makes to grow we have to plant in water and, and we should be coming out from this corrupt world, establishing our own communities, our own church groups. We, our tithes should go in, in, into the League of the South, in, into the less fortunate of our League of the South members. It could be in services. It doesn't necessarily have to be in money. But we should be doing for one another and supporting one another. And not these worldly churches that are going to send it all the niggers. Uh, yeah, well said, sir. That's what I've been doing now with my tithe for quite some time. Uh, and I encourage all our, uh, our people to do that. Uh, don't darken the doors of these dens of iniquity. You know, find your own, uh, find your own uh, people to worship with. And when I say your own people, you know, people who are fellow nationalists, southern nationalists, white nationalists, whatever you want to call us, uh, find those people. Worship with them, encourage them, uh, 
keep your keep your uh, uh, wealth within that community and don't give it out to people who are going to be using it against you. Right. These are some fundamental things that we need to be doing. There's still too many League of the South members, I think, with their minds turned towards the world. And, and if they're going to be nationalists, and especially southern nationalists, they have to turn to their own southern people, to, to those people that were um, raised in the same pasture that they were and trained up together so, so that they can be true nationalists. That's right, sir. That's a very good way of putting it. We've all been raised in the same pasture, as it were, the same same cultural milieu, and uh, with, with uh, you know the same blood in our veins. And we need to act like this. We need to be a true assembly of people in in the godly uh, sense of the term, and uh, a true ecclesia. Uh, and there's no way to do that outside of forming our own communities of nationalists uh, and, and eschewing uh, the siren song uh, of, of modern religion, religious uh, orthodoxy, as it were, uh, and, and, you know, come out from these uh, uh, empty, whitened sepulchers, as the Bible calls them, where there is nothing but death and, and destruction awaiting us. So... It's, it's a very important thing, uh, that, that, that question that you raised at the beginning today. What is a church? And our people, I, I hope and pray, will find the answer to this. And, and I think you, sir, are going to be very important in helping them uh, to distinguish between what is and what isn't a true church. Well, well I pray because I, I know for a fact, because I've had this experience, once you reduce your um, religious life to your fellow people, to your own people, and gather with them, you have a congregation. And you study the scripture. Yes. You study the scripture and, and the necessary history in order to understand the scripture, and you do that together, and you edify one another with your studies, and you answer one another's questions, and, and develop into what we might call a home church, say, or a small community church. Well, you will have no more conflicts in your conscience. You will have no more conflicts no. In, in, in your thinking and in your actions. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If you're a nationalist on Saturday and going to a Catholic church to listen to their universalist drivel on Sunday, you're going to be a double-minded man. There's no way around it. There's yeah, there's no way around that. And see that that was the problem that I was I was having. I was being I was being taught <clears throat> one thing on uh on Sundays and on Monday I was going back to living a completely different way and I knew that the two couldn't be squared with one another and I knew that one was right and one wasn't and it didn't take me long to figure out that I was being taught a lot of lies at the at the church that I was going to so it uh you know the the Lord gave me eyes to see and ears to hear and I thank him for that because he's led me away from, I think, a, a dead-end path 
a dangerous path on onto a path where things have opened up and the light has shown on some truths that I previously was not was unable to see because they were obscured in the darkness of this false man-made religion that was masquerading as Christianity. Well, I pray the rest of our people can listen to this and <clears throat> excuse me and and give all these things thought and and reflection and and take action to reconcile that their um that their Christian beliefs and and their own people and their lives and and their their spirit because nationalism comes from the spirit. And, and to me, nationalism is that little of a belief in nationalism. It could be Southern nationalism. It, it could be white nationalism. It, a care for your own people is representative to me of that little switch that God hits that turns a light on inside you. It's time to start seeking. Because he said he would write his laws in our hearts. There can be, That's right. in the end, no disparity between what we have in our spirit, our minds, and our everyday practice in life, which is our religion. All three of those things have to go together. The mind, the soul, and the spirit all have to go together, and they have to be uh, in agreement with one another, or a man, as you said, will be, at the very least, double-minded. And, it, uh, and and certainly very confused about what the truth is and very confused about how to live his life. Um, and one of the things that I always like to, to go back to, I think, is, as one of the proofs that God uh, certainly is a nationalist, <laughs> the original nationalist, is that he tells us without any, uh, without any doubt that a man who will not take care of his own is worse than an infidel. And there's no question about what that means. It means your neighbors, you know, your family, your 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 neighbors, those who come from the same pasture as Absolutely. you do. No doubt. Thank you, sir. I, I pray that um that that our fellow league members hear this and, and give it careful consideration and, and that nationalists no matter where they are, that, that white nationalists in New York or, or California hear it. And, and take action likewise. It, it needs to be done by whites everywhere, but especially whites in, in organizations such as the League of the South that are supposed to and expected to be in agreement with us. And, and if they're not all the way there, I hope to pull them along to, to get them the rest of the way. That, that's all I pray. Well, sir, to, to say something that I've heard you say before and seen you write, members of the league ought to form their own uh, Bible study groups, fellowships, out of their own local organizations. And as you have pointed out, too, and as I've pointed out on numerous occasions, we don't claim to be a church, but our members should find their churches right. within our organization and Absolutely. stop supporting those dens of iniquity out there that call themselves churches, which have as their end goal, whether they're conscious of it or not, our destruction as a people. What we want is to facilitate 
our survival as a people. And I think this is one of the crucial ways in which we can do that, is to understand what makes up a true church and then to go about creating those churches, those assemblies of God's people that don't, do not necessarily have to have a building and certainly don't have to have a priest or a pastor, but who worship God in the way that he has instructed us, his people, to worship him. Amen. That, that's the way it should be. And, and as far as pastors are concerned, you, you know, that the early Christian assemblies w- would get together and eventually the, the men most talented and suited to be the pastor, who's the community leader, he would be recognized and approved and appointed by the people themselves. The people chose their pastor. The pastors weren't imposed yeah. on them by some foreign potentate. If your That's right. religious leader, your spiritual advisor, is imposed on you by a foreign potentate, then you're a slave to that foreigner. Absolutely. And your theology is not a liberating thing, but it binds you as chains. Absolutely. Well, if any um, League of the South group or community what wants a little guidance, what to study, what what to look at, what to read, I'd, I'd be more than willing to do that. That I could do. Well, sir, you are eminently qualified to do so, and I would be very happy to see our uh, study groups, uh, Bible study sessions and all, uh, avail themselves of your very kind and generous offer to do that. I know that I've benefited very greatly from reading not only uh, the things that you have written, but the things that you have recommended that I read that others have, have written or put on the videotape or whatever. So uh, you are a very, very good resource uh, for helping our people get started down this path, sir. Thank you, sir, and thank you for being here. It's been a great pleasure. And It's always a pleasure, sir, to get together with you. I pray to do so again soon. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you.